Bienvenidos and welcome to the Voces Podcast. My name is Ana Lucia Lopez Reboredo, and I am your host. Today's guest is Kiyomi Kowalski. Kiyomi is a mom, a Marine Corps veteran, a lawyer, and a social justice advocate. Kiyomi's social justice work is centered on creating more inclusive spaces for Jewish people of all backgrounds, as well as eradicating racism and anti-Semitism. In 2021, Kiyomi co-founded Jubian Princess, a Black Jewish women-led organization to deliver corporate-level diversity and inclusion education to Jewish organizations with a Jewish lens. That same year, she joined the Project Shema team as a coach and facilitator to help educate people on anti-Semitism and its root causes. In her role as a director of partnerships at Project Shema, Kiyomi works with local Jewish activists to create a training and support strategy with the goal of slowing the tide of anti-Semitism in progressive spaces. Kiyomi is a proud alumna of New Politics Leadership Academy and Emerge California, an organization that trains and prepares Democratic women to run for office. She lives with her partner and two kids in the suburbs of Los Angeles, where she can be found watercolor painting, embroidering, and sewing pieces of flair to inspire a more just world. Welcome, Kiyomi. It's so great to have you. And I had so much fun reading your bio just now. I think in particular, I wasn't prepared for that end. I, I knew you were doing these big things. You're fighting racism and anti-Semitism, but you also love to paint and you love to sew. And all of these pieces that also make you who you are are important to include in a bio. So thank you for doing that and for showing our listeners just how whole, how complete you are, how intricate, how nuanced. And I feel like that kind of leads me into this first question that I wanted to explore with you. And you start your bio by listing that you're a mother. And in addition to that, you're a Marine Corps veteran and a lawyer and an activist, so many big things. And so I'm curious, especially as a working mom, and it's not always easy to lead with the personal. In fact, we've been trained for so long to leave it out. And I'd love for you to share a little bit more as to why you decided to not only leave it in, but to begin your bio with that part of who you are. Thank you for having me, Anna Lucia. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, I, I, yeah I'm a, a lot of things. I'm a multifaceted person, if you will. Um, and I think it was important I listed mom first. And I will say that I don't love be like uh, listing mom first uh, because I'm a lot of other things before I was a mom. Um, however, my son asked me the other day, uh, you know, what was the most influential thing in your life or, uh, and, and, or who was the most influential person in your life? And I, it was hard for me. And I said, uh, you actually, my oldest son, I said, you changed who I was. It's important to uh, give that fullest introduction to give everyone an opportunity to potentially see themselves in your story. I think, you know, when you say Marine, people probably think one thing. And I'm like, no, 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 I have a lot of things. I've been a, a lot of things in my life. And uh, I, I I like to give people the opportunity to, to see themselves in, in, in some of the spaces I've inhabited in my life. Right. Um, I think some people at times also see that bios have become too much about a story or there's, this is some like reproach that some people get. And I just think that's ridiculous because you should be sharing with people who are listening to your bio a little bit about what you're about. They should have 
some understanding. They should be intrigued to learn more. And they should also have an idea as to what it is that you believe in, right? Especially if you're in the activist world, uh, as if you're being an advocate for people, like there needs to be some form of knowing where it is that your values stand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People talk about virtue signaling, like it's a bad thing. And I was like, no, no, no. If you are not signaling your virtues, then what are you doing? Um, and, you know, I, and I, 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 I'm very easy in, in my skin on, on those bits and uh, happy to, to talk with them when it's, when it's a talk about them when it's appropriate. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that by you giving yourself the opportunity to share parts about yourself that might not typically make it onto a bio, you are allowing not only yourself to be seen for really who you are, but you're also allowing people to see themselves in you. And you're allowing them to hopefully, you're inspiring them to hopefully share more about themselves and and add to that chain of human connection. Uh, and so I think it's really inspiring and something that we should all be thinking about. Like, what is it that we share and, and the things that we don't share, why don't we share them? So similarly, I'm curious how other elements of your identity show up when you're building relationships with others. And I'm specifically thinking about the fact that for yourself as an Afro-Latina Jewish woman, oftentimes your identity can be flattened and so much gets lost, right? The fact that you're a Jew, the fact that you're Venezuelan, like there's so many pieces here that are important. And also it's exhausting to continuously have to fill people in on things about yourself. So I'm curious, What is the process that goes through your mind when you're thinking about pieces of yourself that you're wanting to share in a racial or Jewish context? Yeah, you know, the identity piece is really tough. And I and I I find myself identifying more and less uh, in some stages of my life and, and in some iterations of who I am see me, you see a Black woman, um, the assumption is African-American, and that is certainly um, my mother's part of the story, but my father is Afro-Latino from Venezuela, and his family immigrated here. I, I often will flatten the identity and just say Black so that it encompasses all the things um, and I and give no further explanation. There are moments when I think it is important, and especially now having um, lost connection to part of that identity, that I'm like, I want to bring that that back. But there's parts of that that are really tough because I have really amazing memories of Latin music and Latin food, and when I was young, and you know, my father was in a Latin band and danced and all the things. But he also was a person who abused my mom. No, you know, telling a whole story. Nobody's just one thing. So he isn't all these gorgeous things, which are memories that I have. But also, really, all these things that really, um, you know, shaped who I am and caused me to to struggle quite a bit. So it feels even further distanced um, from who I am. So I was so grateful when I got an opportunity to explore uh, my Latin identity with Jutina Iko and, um, you know, come into that space and, and realize this is you, this, you belong here. Right. No, I think you just hit the nail on the head. It's complex. It's complicated. And on one end you can, go with the flattening of an identity. And on the other end, 
you can kind of break it apart and then be met with resistance. So thank you for sharing. And you're raising multiracial, multiethnic, multicultural kids. How does this come up in your conversations? How do how has this come up for you as a parent? And how has this come up for you when you're talking about it with your kids? Yeah. Oh, that's a that's a heavy question because there's a lot of aspects to raising multi uh, 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 multi ethnic uh, children. Uh, so I will say, just so that you can understand the full picture, my oldest son, who is 15, going on 16, he is his father is Peruvian and Polish. Um, he was born in Poland and immigrated here when he was 12, um, I believe was the age. And, um, and his mother is Peruvian. Uh, so father's Polish, mother's Peruvian. And then, um, and then I had Kennedy and brought, a black African American identity and, uh, South American identity from my, from my father. And so Kennedy has this whole, uh, cauldron, if you will, um, and then we've got Moses, who is my my little guy, who's seven, going on eight, and he has, you know, uh, my pieces, black and uh, Afro Latino, um, and also his father's white Ashkenazi Jewish uh, uh, background. Um, so we have two ex- two different experiences. Jewishly and uh, ethnically, uh, Jewishly, I, I'd like to say, is it's really funny because um, I uh, I was a I, I am a convert and I um, always knew I was Jewish. But when I before I knew what Jewish was, I knew I was Jewish. Like I just was like, oh yeah, these are the values. And then when I found out what it was, I was like, oh, definitely. And so then years later, when I met my partner, who is. Uh, my son's father, my young son's father, um, it made sense for us uh, to convert. And Moses was in utero in the mikvah and the whole thing. And so all, all happiness. And so Moses has always traveled the Jewish uh, path. Kennedy, on the other hand, came from a family where he uh, was uh, born with more Christian um, traditions. And so when it came time for him to become a bar mitzvah, that was him having to make a choice. Like I, I would like to be Jewish. And so he went through the conversion process by his own choice as well. And so I always find it funny because I, you know, uh, we, we teach people about ask my children, is your mother Jewish? The answer is yes. And that would give you no information as to what, uh, you know, how that all transpired and, and, and what happened. So I just find it, I find it really funny. And Moses born Jewish, like, were you born Jewish? Yes, Moses was born. It would be very confusing for people to understand like these two bifurcated realities in my home. Let's talk a little bit about where you live. You've mentioned, you've given us some breadcrumbs, right? You've said like LA, you've said suburbia. So tell us a little bit about what that means. And just going off a little bit on that previous conversation about your children, what does that mean for you? As a parent, um, I live in a community where about 37% of us are Jewish in Calabasas and, and West, West San Fernando Valley. And so we are well overrepresented in this community. So the Jewish identity is kind of always around us and it's in our ether. 
But uh, my kids don't get a lot of their other culture here. So I have to be really intentional about engaging them on that piece. So, you know, I join organizations like Mocha Mom. Whoop, whoop. They're a nationally chartered uh, <laughs> group of Black women celebrating being moms, but not just that, supporting each other in motherhood. Like a lot of these mom groups are centered around children. And we're like, no, 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 this is support for moms, like centered around moms. So, you know, we go away on these weekends and and hang out and get to know each other and just be and comfortable in our own uh, Black, delicious, melanated skin. And then I have to be extremely intentional about how I'm going to get my kids to engage in those pieces. So setting up play dates with the moms, you know, my son is the youngest one is starting private school where uh, you have to go to private school to find diversity in this community. It doesn't occur in the public schools and um, like it does in most jurisdictions. So you know, Black students and Black families and supporting regardless of whatever you're able to pay, like, but really intentional about bringing everyone in because, and in people who look like him and, and, and see that diversity and richness in our community. And it's sad that we have to pay $45,000 a year to do so, but you know what? You do what you got to do. <laughs> wow. A-, a couple of things that I'm reacting to. One is what you said, you had to go to private school to get the diversity that you wanted for your children, for them to see themselves wild, okay? And secondly, $45,000, that is a lot. That's not nothing. That's more than college tuition at a lot of places, at a lot of schools. So just recognizing that it is a heavy lift for a lot of parents, depending on where they live, specifically in suburban communities that might be very well-versed when it comes to Jewish community, right? Or at least seeming so. And at the same time, missing so many key pieces, which is which is crucial given how diverse our Jewish community is and how much more it's becoming. I think a lot of this has led to how we met and via your work with Jubian Princess. And I know that you're one of the co-founders, you along with April Powers. And I'd love for you to share a little bit more about Jubian Princess, its origin story, its mission, and things that we should know about. Uh, thank you for asking. I We live in the West San Fernando Valley, and there is literally a synagogue on every corner if if the synagogue is lucky, they have one person of color in the synagogue, right? And 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 if at all, one black person. Like it's not like not a thing. And so we were introduced by some friends uh, of mine when I was running for office locally, and she told me about all the work that she's done in DEI and corporate spaces. And I said I have an idea that we need to do. Um, inclusion training with the Jewish lens for Jewish spaces. And the other thing is, because it's such a tongue-in-cheek title, Dupian Princess, it tells you we take this work seriously, but we cannot take ourselves seriously. And we have to have the humility uh, to kind of laugh at our mistakes and say, oh, okay, what are we going to do to make this different or, uh, you know, to change things? And hopefully what we do is, is demonstrate that that vulnerability. I don't know that people necessarily get that when they think of our names, but it, it is grounding for us to say, like, we take this work seriously. We do not take ourselves seriously. And we want 
to demonstrate that for those who uh, we come across. So Jubilee Princess brings uh, corporate level diversity, equity, and inclusion training with a Jewish lens to Jewish spaces specifically. Amazing. I mean, you do so much. And what you're doing with Jubian Princess is transformative. And also, I mentioned in your bio earlier, but you're also the director of partnerships for Project Shema, an organization that works with American Jews and allies to have fruitful dialogue around Israel and Palestine. So you talk to a lot of people about very difficult things. And I'm curious to know, as we close out this podcast, if there's one bit of not necessarily advice, but one takeaway that you always want the people that you're working with, the Jewish communities that you're working with to know. So whatever it is, I'd love for you to share it with us as we close out. Okay. So I'm going to say it and I may have to repeat it because I'm going to double down on it. And I think it goes with both spaces in the uh, progressive Jewish space. So if you're working uh, politically, um, and in uh, the Jewish communal work um, with with Jubian Princess. Whiteness has never kept Jews safe. I will say it again. Whiteness has never kept Jews safe. And I think it's important that we remember that because as uh, we we live in a world where Jews uh, want to be safe. Like, right. Of course, 6 million of us perished and that we've been exiled from every, every area of the world over millennia, like want to be safe. So often what, what we're finding is the retreat to whiteness for safety or proximity to whiteness for safety. However, the, Jews, the six million of us who who perished in the Holocaust, they were all white passing. They all looked white. They were not safe. And when we pick up the mantle of whiteness and all of the things that come with this, this white supremacy construct, um, and, and, and we pick it up for the sake of our own safety, we don't realize that we're actually putting ourselves further in danger because we're not embracing our, our otherness. Um, so I am on a personal mission to remind Jews to put their kippah back on. And if we can do that as white and white passing Jews, we can actually build more inclusive communities by having more empathy for those among us who don't look like the stereotype of what we believe uh, or have told ourselves that Jews look like and, and are. So that's the one thing I think across uh, both uh, streams is that we have to remember that whiteness is not a place of safety. So uh, when I say put your kippah back on, it doesn't mean we're all the same because we're all Jewish and we have should all have the same experience and that there's no reason to address the other intersectional issues. It is saying, I want you to start from a place of empathy. If you can understand your otherness, I need you to make that leap to understand others' otherness within our own community. Thanks, Kiyomi. It was so fun to be able to talk with you today. I appreciate your candidness, your passion, and truly everything that you're doing is worth noting. And if folks don't already know what it is that you're up to, I hope that this gives them a little bit more of an insider's look at everything that you're doing. Thank you, Anna Lucia. This was so fun. Um, you're really easy to talk to, turns out. <laughs> Gracias, Kiyomi. 
Your story is a powerful reminder that no two Latin Jewish stories are alike, which is why it is so important that we continue to lift up as many Latin Jewish stories as possible. To all of our listeners out there, thank you so much for your support. This is season three of the Voces podcast. We are bringing you a new episode every Wednesday through the end of January of 2023 and really look forward to continuing to build this community with all of you. Until next time, ciao!